Graham Weaver is the founder and managing partner of Alpine Investors. He started Alpine out of his dorm room at Stanford and started buying companies with his credit card. Over the last 22 years, he's built a private equity firm with $16 billion in assets under management. In this conversation, Weaver unpacks his unique strategy of building Alpine, what daily habits have dramatically transformed his life, and why he believes we should all strive to live an asymmetric life. Graham, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Paulina. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Um, okay, so I want to start at an interesting place. Uh, your parents got divorced when you were 13, and I read that you've said that their divorce felt like the earth was shifting under me, and that's the period in your life where you stumbled across um, self-help uh, in your local library. You say that that discovery changed your life. How so? Well, I think when you're a teenager in general, you're sort of looking for something to grab onto. You're figuring out who you are. You're self-aware for the first time. And I, because my home life was unsettling, I was really looking looking for something to grab onto. And I mowed lawns at the time. I spent probably seven or eight hours every weekend mowing lawns in Perrysburg, Ohio, that was the best way I could find to make money. And I had a Sony Walkman and I would listen to music for, the, I don't know, for, for a long time. And then one day I was going to the library to check out some music and there was this book that said, Think and Grow Rich. Mm. And I remember thinking, who doesn't want to think and grow rich? <laughs> so I, you know, checked that out. And almost from the first sentence, I was just completely enthralled. And it was, of course, Napoleon Hill's fav uh, famous uh, book. Um, and and then I listened to that book, I don't even know how many times. And then our library had a whole self-help section, and I just got really into that. And it was Brian Tracy, Earl Nightingale, Tony Robbins, folks, you know, people like that. And their content was just outstanding in hindsight. Even today, when I look back, it was just really phenomenal content. And to be able to grab onto something like that at that age was just really powerful. So that you know the the general premise, if I had to summarize all of that, was just you know be intentional about what you want to do with your life, set some goal, write it down. They all they were all in favor of writing it down every day in the present tense, and then and then I added you know writing down the things that I was going to do to work toward that goal. And the first couple things I wrote down came true really quickly, mm. and then I I got I got a I got addicted, and I've, I I still use that same practice today. I write my goals down every day. That's really interesting. It reminds me of um, David Goggins talks about the accountability mirror where he'll post little sticky notes on his mirror that say like, go one day without lying for validation or run two miles or, or things like, like small actions that he can take every day to reach his goals. Is that what you did? Or was it more like, I have this grand goal and I'm going to break it down and write that down every day? It was, it was very granular. So there was a lot going on at that time. I was cutting a lot of weight for wrestling. Mm. I was I was right around six feet tall. I'm six one now, but I was about six feet tall at the time, and I wrestled one twenty five. So I was skin and bone. So I was really, I was really um, careful about my diet. So I would write that down. I would mm. write down every homework assignment I had, when, where I was, when I was going to finish it. I would write down the times I wanted to run in my morning runs. I'd write down how much I weighed, how much I wanted to weigh, how much I thought I'd weigh tomorrow. That wasn't super healthy. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not uh, recommending that, but that was what I did. And, and I just, I, I literally would write my goals out 
um, multiple times a day. So it got very, very granular, but it it had the impact of just harnessing my mind and my energy on where I wanted to go. I didn't realize how powerful that was, but I just started knocking things down uh, consistently and and it and it and it became then it became a habit. I, th- I think you build you build uh, you build self esteem by making and keeping small commitments to yourself, and th- that's exactly what I ended. I didn't know that at the time, but that's that's that was the effect of of those little goals. Yeah, I um, I I think it's Reed Hoffman once said, "Consistency plus time equals trust," and he meant it more as in like when you're doing business deals or any sort of relationship, if you're consistent and keep your promises over a long period of time people will trust you. But I think it's very similar to keeping the promises to yourself. Yeah. Consistency plus time is, is, is almost undefeated. (laughs) You know, if you, for me, at least is doing, doing, moving toward one thing for a long enough time daily and consistently. I, I, I don't know. There aren't many obstacles that will not yield to that formula. Absolutely. So, okay. So when you were in college, you started your private equity firm, Alpine, out of your dorm room. And you were, I, what I found fascinating is you were buying the companies on your credit card, which is, it sounds exactly like what I would do if somebody was like, start a private equity firm tomorrow. Tell me about the origin story of Alpine. So what happened was I worked on Wall Street, like at the normal Wall Street job where I learned nothing. Basically, <laughs> they make Wall Street out to be this big thing and it's really exciting. Yeah. But basically, <laughs> they crammed one month of learning into two years. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, so like I learned how to build a financial model and then repeated and, and, that. And what were you, what were you doing on Wall Street? Exactly? So I worked at a private equity firm. Okay. Uh, Morgan, I worked at Morgan Stanley's private equity firm. At the time, okay. there were only, uh, I think that was the only firm that hired direct, the only private equity firm that hired directly out of college. And I, I worked there. And so we built financial models. Did that for two years, got to be able to do it really quickly, but that was about it. Then I worked at a small firm with only two people for about 18 months. Um, and that was amazing. I learned a ton from from mm-hmm. two people, really good training. I learned the mechanics of buying a business. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what a good business was. I didn't know how to assess it, but I knew mechanically the process for buying a business. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and I conflated that with, oh, I know how to buy a company. I'm going to be a great investor. Yeah. So then I, I show up at business school. I, w- I, I went to Stanford Business School. I show up in my first class and it's the first quarter. And I had this, you know, I had a great experience with that last firm. And I show up and I'm sitting there and there's this 25-year-old TA who's a PhD student, never worked a day in his life. And he's teaching a strategy. <laughs> And it was his first time teaching. He's like literally reading out of the textbook. And I was thinking to myself, what did I just do? I just gave up two years, paid all this money. I'm in debt. I better do something. You know, I, I better make this mean something. So I said, I'm going to go buy a company. So I started cold calling label printing businesses because I that was an industry mm-hmm. I kind of knew a little bit. They were small companies where you could have local economies of scale. And um, I started cold calling them. I found an owner who wanted to sell his business. I did all this work over the phone because I'm 25 years old. He didn't know how old I was. And when I actually showed up, you could just see his face drop because I was 25. I looked like I was about 14 at the time. Yeah. And uh, actually, <laughs> funny story. I was like so late to that meeting. It was a three-hour meeting. 
and it was in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and they didn't change the clocks. So I was an hour late before I even oh. started because I had the daylight savings times wrong. And then I was about another 45 minutes late because I got lost. So <laughs> it wasn't a good start. But anyway, what, what you could do back then is, you know, I would get uh, debt that was securitized by the assets of the company, the presses and the accounts receivable and the inventory and things like that. That was a decent amount of the purchase price. Then some more debt from the bank that just gave it based on cash flow. And then I got more debt, which was subordinated debt, which was really expensive, like 17% money. And then he gave me some seller debt. So I financed Mm -hmm. most of the purchase price with debt. And then there was a tiny sliver of equity. And back then, Capital One was launching these things. You would get these you would get these checks literally in your in your mail that would say, write yourself a check for $50,000 and pay no interest for 12 months. And I just did that. <laughs> I did that like seven times and that was my equity. And then you would get other ones that would say, roll your credit card and pay no interest. So I had this elaborate wow. spreadsheet about where I was going to, the interest was going to start hitting me at some point. Uh, but I, again, once again, not recommended, not like that's the way to do it, but that was just how I did it back then. And uh, that that was kind of the beginning of of Alpine, not your typical your typical origin story. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. Um, and so, okay, so you you've been doing this um, with Alpine for twenty two years. Uh, fast forward to today, you just raised the four point five billion dollar buyout fund in a very challenging fundraising environment. Um, what would you say is kind of one of the fundamental like keys? to building trust with your limited partners over the last few decades? It's a great question. So we have we have three pillars, not to sound like a marketing pitch, but this is actually the answer to your question. We have three pillars, one of one of which is we're going to be the number one performing fund of all time as measured by mm-hmm. net return on capital, not by how much assets we manage or IRRs or other things, but actually we you give me a dollar, how many dollars do I give you back? That's our number one that's how we measure it. And our number one objective is to be the number one firm in the world at that metric. Our number two, another number two objective is to be the place where the best people want to come and work. Mm-hmm. And number three is to use all that to be a force for social good. The, but the first one is shocking how rare that is. <laughs> how 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 rare it is for someone to set that performance goal as an objective. So we set that as a goal um, in 2009. By the way, when the time we set that goal, we had no business setting it. We didn't have great performance. And we put it in writing, just like and I was why, saying before. Why did you do that? Well, the first 10 years of Alpine was underwhelming. Uh, we lost money on our first fund. The next two funds were kind of okay. And then the recession hit us in 2008, and we got flattened. So we're basically on the edge of going out of business. And... I hired this executive coach, uh, which was the first time I, I didn't even know what an executive coach was. Yeah, I didn't know what they did. I thought when I hired my coach, by the way, I thought he was going to tell me exactly what to do, <laughs> which is not what happens at all. They just ask a lot of questions. And and in the process of that coaching, I started to realize I had all these limiting beliefs, all these like barriers were coming up. I can't be good because of this. We're we don't deserve this. We can't hire good people. We can't raise more money. We're not. And it was amazing. Like these things just like poured out of myself and the other people who worked at Alpine. And then once we had those out of our mind and on paper, we could look at them objectively. They didn't have control over us. And so we just started plowing forward through those things. It really was that. It was like 
it was about our psychology, not about our strategy, not about our assets. Or it was really started with, and I think this is true for every company. It starts with the psychology of the owner or the psychology of the CEO. And then I changed my psychology and something I, I should have known how to do because I learned that, you know, mowing lawns, yeah. but I, I'd kind of gotten in the in the fog of war and forgotten all that. And so as soon as we started changing that, then we started setting really aspirational goals and then working backwards from those and and then just delivering, you know, I mean, just putting our heads down, put the helmet on and and actually delivering on on that. And we put metrics to every single goal so that we knew how we were doing against those. And then at some point, our team started believing it. At some point, we started believing it. And th- that happened way before we ever hit it. Mm-hmm. So like I always say, like when you set this aspirational goal that's something exciting like that, part of you assumes the identity of someone who's already achieved that goal. Absolutely. So if you write down, you know, we are the number one performing private equity firm in the world every day on your walls and your stuff. And you, you know, some of your part of you starts behaving like that way before you've ever achieved it. And that actually started happening. And and then we just built some momentum and momentum. And then, you know, that's that was kind of the, the real turning point for us. And because you, as you're talking, I'm thinking like 22 years, that means that you've weathered multiple crises, oh, yeah. Yeah. like the dot-com bubble, the financial crisis, COVID, now inflation, whatever's going on. By the way, we weathered all those plus... <laughs> Three times as many uh, just self-inflicted crises yeah. <laughs> that we're not even describing. <laughs> but yes, definitely all those crises and then many more that we just were shooting ourselves. Self-inflicted. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what have you learned about like crisis leadership in that time? You know, I think I I actually think there, there uh, Ben Horowitz in his book, The Hard Things About Hard Things, talks about wartime CEOs and peacetime CEOs. Mm. I think I'm a wartime CEO. I think I do better when the pressure's on, when there's urgency, when we can just corral the forces. The thing that I tell our team, and that which I truly believe, is that there's no such thing as a good or bad market. That mm. sounds, you might think that that's counterintuitive, but if the market is crashing and has crashed, like that means that people might not have money. There might be people that have to sell. It might be a great time to hire talent because nobody's hiring. It might be a great time to do add-on acquisitions where you can fold the businesses in. Mm-hmm. And when things are cranking and everyone believes the world's going to go on and be great forever, great time to sell. <laughs> you know, great time to be really careful. Great time to uh, get get out of businesses you wouldn't be able to get out of another market. So my my general philosophy is like take what the market gives you. And react mm-hmm. to that. And there's always something good that's coming out of the market, even in the Great Recession. I mean, the the fund that we raised right around the Great Recession was really our first coming out party for our, our performance. Yeah. It's really interesting because every founder that I've interviewed, regardless of industry, like um, I interviewed Danny Meyer in the restaurant world and Ron Shake, the founder of Panera, and they all said that it's really interesting, like um, you know, recent founders, if they started their company in a boom time, they just assume that it's going to last forever. And if you've been doing this for so long, you know that everything's temporary. So that's interesting how it plays within your strategy. Yeah. You don't want to read your press too much on the way up or the way down. So it can be dangerous in both cases. You, you're you're not probably as good as you think you are. 
when the market's good and you're not as bad as you think you are when it's bad. So you have to temper things. And again, I learned that the hard way. And just out of curiosity, how many of your original LPs are still with you today? Not as many as you might think. Um, We have, because here's why, because in the early days, like imagine you're a 27 year old raising a fund, you have no track record and you look like you're 14 there's a certain type of investor that wants to invest in that. And our first one was $54 million. So that attracts a certain, by the way, the answer to that question is, has to be an individual capable of making that decision him or herself, because they're not, you can't, there's no institution that's going to say yes, because there's just too much risk and downside. So the first few funds was largely individuals and family offices. And then as we grow now, four and a half billion, now the people who like to invest in us are pension funds and insurance funds and big endowments and things like that. So we have some that were there for most of the time. And we have some that have small ones that have been there the whole time, some individuals, but the composition does change over time. Got it. Got it. Um, And I read that you go into every sale with an offense deck and a defense deck. Can you explain what these are? Yeah. So I think if you're selling anything, you want to have an offense deck and a defense deck. So the offense deck is what you would think. It says, here's the three or four reasons why you have to buy this company. This This is why you have to own it. And and you can be a little aspirational, not untruthful, but aspirational in that, in in selling the dream and the vision. And so we spend a lot of time on painting that vision. By the way, we paint the vision for ourselves and then hopefully live into it. And then we want to paint the vision for the next buyer too. The defense deck is what's probably more interesting, which is what are all the reasons they're not going to want to invest or not going to want to buy? So when we fundraise, we have a defense that here's all the objections. By the way, if you t- sat down for 10 minutes and just listed out all the objections, you're almost never going to have someone come up with one you didn't come up with. Mm-hmm. So they're, they like the, the objections aren't that complicated. They're, they're going to be things you, you generally already know. And then here's the, here's the counterintuitive part. You actually want to bring all of the defense into the meeting. So, for example, if someone says, like in the early days, "Hey, obviously one of my big defenses you have no track record," you know what I would what I want to say is, "You're probably thinking I have no track record," <laughs> and then they're like, "Yeah, I am thinking that. that's exactly yeah. what I'm thinking." So you're gaining credibility, and then you have the opportunity to move them from there with your your bullet points. What a lot of people are like, they get out of that meeting and they say, oh gosh, thank God my lack of track record didn't come up at the meeting. But then it comes up behind closed doors and you never actually have an ability to dissuade someone of that objection. So you the, the, the counterintuitive part is make the defense deck and then talk about that in the meeting. If they don't invest, fine, you get, but you got to, you got to go down swinging, you know, giving your, uh, your best pitch on those, on those objections. That's such a good point. And it also kind of disarms them, right? It, it, if yeah. they come in hot, you're like, I already know yeah. what your objections are going to be. And it builds trust because they say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking. You're <laughs> you're 27 and you have no track record. Yeah. Now, tell them, now they're listening because they're right. thinking that's exactly what I was thinking coming into the meeting. Now, you may or may not get them to get excited about it, but at least you're you're giving your best shot. 
That's such a good point. So you actually recommend making both decks, but using the points of the defense deck in the offense deck. Absolutely. Yeah. You want to bring up the objections proactively in the meeting. Got it. That's that's really good. Um, so on a more personal note, you've said that one of the biggest lessons you've learned in your life and career is that the real battle in life is an internal one. So what has that been for you? And how do you recommend that other people can actually identify what it is for them? I mean, that's such a deep question, Paulina. So um, when so like if you go back to the story I told earlier where I thought that the problem with Alpine was the market and the assets and the kinds of deals we were doing. The real problem was our psychology, what we believed to be true, what the limiting beliefs that we held, the lack of these ability for us to hit these aggressive targets. That was actually the battle. So the battle in that was an internal battle of feeling like we're enough, feeling like mm-hmm. we can we're worthy of what's about you know what what we what we want in this world and that preceded any external battle and the world always presents itself to you as a bunch of external battles there's this problem this employee quits all those things and of course that's all happening but remember you're the one who's putting meaning on it you're the one who's deciding what that narrative means you're also the one who's deciding the game you're playing what the score of that game is, how you're keeping score, you know, and and when you really add up all that, like this life is mostly happening in your mind, you know. And I know that sounds weird that because because it does because <laughs> it does present itself as a whole series of external things. But remember, every external thing that ever happens goes through this massive filter, mm-hmm. and then you are interpreting it, putting meaning on it, you know, placing relevance. You know, you're winning, you're losing, all those kinds of things. So, that's my short version. There, you know, we could talk about this for four hours, but uh, I've I've definitely been on this big kick of Buddhism and meditation, where I've I've, I've been spending a lot of energy on on this exact topic. <laughs> this thing, um, and and just to dig a little deeper here, so you've said that uh, time spent working on yourself is the highest returning investment you'll ever make. I'm curious about some of your daily habits that you believe have had the highest ROI in, in your life. <clears throat> yeah, great question. I would put those in really simply two buckets. The first bucket is, uh, we'll say, health and just being um, physically and in, in bringing my best physical self to to life. And the, the reason that I prioritize that so high is literally like, what I started to realize is if I feel amazing, I have an amazing day. Like it is pretty much 100% correlated, yeah. irrespective of what's going on in the day. Is I'm charged up, I'm excited, then I have a good day. So I was like, I'm going to try to solve that because then life is going to be pretty good. So on that list is sleep, huge fan of sleep. I uh, I just wrote a blog on that yesterday. Um, and, and so just, you know, spend a lot of energy on sleep habits. And so I, I, I try to get seven or eight hours of sleep and I'm, I'm pretty good about, about that. Then, uh, do something cold. So a cold plunge, cold shower right away, kind of wakes you up. There's a lot of science on the immune system and, and what, what that does. But, but if nothing else, it just gets you going, it gets you up. I meditate for 30 minutes a day, 20 minutes of that is the, I do a breathing exercise, the Wim Hof breathing. And then I do 20 minutes of meditating. Um, that's amazing. 
uh, gets kind of me in the, the right mindset about just being present for the day. And then I work out. Um, mm-hmm. And that that's my morning. I don't put things on the calendar typically until 10 a.m. So I can actually really complete that morning routine consistently. I have the luxury of, the, of being able to do that. But you could probably people have a lot more uh, flexibility and control than they think they do. If you just block that time, stuff just tends to work around it. So, and then, and then I do, and then in that same uh, time before 10 a.m., I'm going to do my most um, cerebral task, whatever that is, writing a lecture, writing a blog, reading something, working on a strategy, you know, reading, reading some board materials, things that take some energy. So that's kind of the morning routine. I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink caffeine. Don't, eat gluten. I don't don't take sleeping pills. You know, I try to keep a pretty clean uh, lifestyle. And, 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 you know, my, my objective is to feel like I'm in my twenties, even though I just turned 51. So um, that's, that's that's the, that's the health side of it, which I think is foundational. And then, and then the second thing of the habits I'd say is just, gosh, I don't want to use this, this term, hate the term, but it's like time management. So there, uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to have my day proactively reflect my goals. So I want the things that I'm working on during the day to match up with my big goals that I've set for myself. Mm-hmm. And the process for doing that for me is to talk to, uh, spend about two hours a week with an executive coach. And we go over the goals. We go over the what you know, how I did it last week, how I'm going to do this week, what what I'm putting on my calendar. We refresh the five year goals, one year goals, a couple times a year, or a couple times even a quarter, and just kind of like keep me directed toward what is important. And then take out taking out my calendar and literally scheduling those on my um, on my calendar. It, 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 the way that that overlaps with work is. <clears throat> I we spend at my firm I I would I would guess we spend more time than any other financial firm in the world using our imagination. <laughs> so we put like I, I just got back this week my four partners and I went to Half Moon Bay for 3 days and just asked big questions looking out at the ocean and it was messy and we you know weren't sure where it was going and we came up with just the most incredible breakthroughs and like those three days are saving us three years of, of of energy going down the wrong path, and I love that. That's like that's where I really get my energy. So, um, we spend a tremendous amount of time at Alpine in that kind of messy imagination, creative space, but it saves decades. Um, and I, and I think that's really uncommon. But I got that from all the work I've done with coaching is just realizing how powerful it is to just get super clear on your intent. Yeah. And that, and that's what I'm hearing. It's like everything that you do in your life is very intentional and nothing is kind of on autopilot. That's really interesting. Um, it reminds me a few years ago, I interviewed, um, Atomic Habits author, James Clear. And he told me, I find that almost every thought I have is downstream from what I consume. If you have better inputs, you naturally get better outputs. I love that. Yeah. So I'm curious how you generate ideas. You kind of just mentioned in the business sense, but also content wise, you have, you have such a variety of topics on your blog and (laughs) on TikTok and Instagram, but like, how do you just generate ideas on a daily basis? 
for for my content, you mean, or for, for your content, that, yeah, you for the content. content or business, yeah. Well, for for business, it's asking the right questions. So in business, it is how do we deliver? I'm not allowed to say this on for SEC rules, but how do we deliver X performance? Yeah. And we're super, you know. And then how would we do that in you know half the time? If we were the best in the world at doubling revenue of a company in the first year, what would be true? Like, forget how we get there. There's this great coaching line, which is the how is the killer of all great dreams. <laughs> That's like my favorite quote. So don't worry about how we get there, but what would be true? We could do this, we do that. So so in, in the business world, I think the questions are the hard part. And the answers come are, are are not as hard. And then the the actual easiest part is taking what you aspire to do and working backwards from that. That's actually not that complicated. And you can get it down to where it's just what we call endogenous steps to get there. So the business, it's kind of asking the right questions, having the right people in the room, the right space. And um that's and and then on the on the on the content creation. Um, I, I, I mean, it's not that magical. I, I keep a list of ideas that I have and my list is way longer than I have time to produce. <laughs> so I've always got 20 things that I'm excited about uh, talking about or researching in many cases. Like I just wrote this sleep blog and a lot of that required a bunch of research as well because I actually wanted to know the answers to these questions. So my blog and my content really just reflect my own journey through life. <laughs> Whatever I'm struggling with or fighting or teaching or learning at work is kind of I'm I'm just sharing that along along the way. So it's not it just happens that I am in a bunch of journeys. So I'm running a private equity fund I'm teaching at Stanford Business School. I'm raising teenagers. I'm fighting, you know, get, trying to stay young. You know, I'm 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 doing a lot of the journeys that people are are doing as well and want to learn about. So, I I'm just kind of sharing my own process as I'm going through it. Yeah, I I, I find that I do a very very similar thing. You know how people say, "Oh, you should journal for yourself to work things out." I'm like, I don't feel like something's resolved until I write it. And I share it publicly because I think it makes, I think the feedback uh, is what makes it really interesting and, and you get more ideas out of that. Yeah. And you know what? It's really cool, Paulina, is like I started teaching. So I started being a case guest at Stanford 2002, but I started teaching yeah. my own class in 2014, so about 10 years ago. And that ended up being the turning point for me being a great CEO also, because I would have to put frameworks on things. I would have to explain it. I'd have to stand in front of a room of students and say, you have to get rid of your B players. You have to do that. And then I look in the mirror and say, okay, I've got B players. <laughs> I've got to, you know, <laughs> and so, and so like just the, the forcing mechanism of you publishing it, teaching it, you know, uh, making a video, writing, it's just such a great forcing mechanism. A hundred percent, because then you feel like a hypocrite if you're not living it. <laughs> That's right, and it doesn't mean, by the way, I do everything that I. I mean, I, I, I'm not perfect, but I certainly, I certainly try to never stand up in front of a room or write a blog or a video about something that I'm not actually doing. Mm -hmm. um, when I was at Fortune Magazine and I turned in my first long form uh, article, my editor said something that's stuck in my head ever since. He said that. 
He was like, I can tell that your thinking is sloppy because your writing is sloppy. Mm. And I was writing in absolutes. I was writing things like nobody at the firm liked, you know, the fund manager or everybody agreed on this one thing. And he was like, that's not true. The the world has nuance and context. And, and this is just very generic in general. Um, so he forced me to like rewrite it where every single word meant something. But in doing that, I learned how to clarify my own thinking. Um, So do you, my my question to you is your writing is very clear and and, and very to the point. Do you ever write with the hope of clarifying your thinking on something you may not know how you feel about yet? hundred percent, hundred percent. And the things you're reading that you're saying are clear did not start off as clear. (laughs) They they started off as, as uh, Tim Ferriss said, right? Two crappy pages. (laughs) And they start off as two crappy pages. (laughs) And that's like the best writing advice I've ever received. And it's because it's like, okay, well, my first draft can suck. And, and if I, if, if I, if I thought my first draft had to be perfect, I, I'd never make a first draft. My, you wouldn't even want to see my first drafts. They're so bad. And then I have, you know, I might show them to, uh, there's a couple of people that I, I I work with and I share them. And they, and this one woman, Audrey, who runs our marketing, she'll come back and say, Graham, you sound like a total douchebag private equity guy. <laughs> I'll say, okay, all right, revise. She tells me like exactly how it is. So then I take that, okay, read this, or hey, this doesn't make any sense, or no one's going to do that or whatever, you know? And so I, I, d- I definitely have some people that help me just with like, how does this come across? Uh, so, yeah. That's that's really interesting. I and and I want to ask you about that actually. So you have a TikTok channel with a million followers. I saw that and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> um, but the reason is it's not you don't just talk about private equity. You talk right. about like the intersection of finance and entrepreneurship and personal growth, and it's it's actually really amazing content. But I'm curious when you have. As somebody who has done video on the internet, <laughs> I know that there's constructive feedback that's really oh, helpful. Yeah. Oh, and then there's just like unruly trolls who are just totally, mad totally. at the world. <laughs> so <laughs> you're so right. That's a good way to say it. <laughs> so how do you how do you um, deal with that? Develop thick skin. And because you just said that, you know, somebody on your team, it, it says a lot about your leadership style that people don't have a problem telling you you sound like a right. but right. how do you develop thick skin and write and put your work out there on the internet it is so hard i mean the the <laughs> i don't know how thick my skin really is uh the uh, it, it is amazing that people what they'll say on there it's just it's unbelievable and then sometimes i'll get something that's so brutal i'll <laughs> click i'll click on their account you know just to see who this is and it'll be it'll be like basically a, a ghost account, you know, zero mm-hmm. posts, zero followers, just like a shell of an, uh, of an, it's not like a, I don't even know what that is, you know? And so I, I probably take that a little bit less seriously. It, and then, and sometimes the, the feedback is constructive where I can like, like a, a good example would be I had, you know, I, I posted, you know, I might post something on goals and someone might say, well, how would this work? You know, yeah, that sounds easy for you to say, but I have a job that I need to make my rent and how would I do that? And it's actually kind of like, it's a good point, you know, and it's something that I hadn't thought about. And then I might make a post on that or something and, or I might reply to the comment or something. So 
a lot of the, some of the feedback is really constructive and helpful to kind of see where the the viewer or the listener is. Uh, but yeah, definitely the trolls. <sighs> some of it's just it's it's funny sometimes. I mean, even if if it weren't directed at me, I would laugh, you know. And uh, so I I don't know I don't know that I have I, I'd ask you the same thing how because I I don't know that I have a super thick skin. Some of the stuff still kind of gets under my skin. Yeah, I. I- I think in the beginning for me, definitely I got under my skin, but I recently published a book and uh, somebody, I was in a really bad mood and my husband was like, what's wrong? And I was like, I don't know, clean freak 72 left a bad Amazon review. on." Clean freak 72. No, I, it's true. Um, <laughs> so, <clears throat> so the profile readers are probably familiar with you because I recently included your Stanford talk. Uh, it was so good. It's called um, How to Live an Asymmetric Life. And my husband and I often talk about living an extraordinary life. So this really kind of uh, was relevant. When did you start thinking about the fact that you wanted to live an a- asymmetric life? I think back when I was 13 years old and I lived in uh, a suburb of Toledo, Ohio, Rust Belt town, blue collar, pretty unextraordinary. I, I, my identity was that I was pretty unextraordinary, you know, ath- athletic wise and grades and everything. And I just wanted to feel, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to try to try to be my own experiment on trying to see if I could be extraordinary. And and it started with really little things, and then kind of swept swept up my whole life. You know, as you heard, like I mean, everything from eating and alcohol and sleeping and running a private equity from all those things. It kind of, it kind of has been my, my life purpose. Um, it's, it's, and, 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 and a lot of it has to do with, you know, some, as we talked about earlier, an external goal, like, okay, I want to have this, these returns at my firm. So the, the endowments that give us money, get a lot of money back to build buildings and give scholarships and all that. I mean, that's really profound. And I'm, super proud of that but if i'm being really honest it's really just because that's that's what i that's what i want for my life you know that's 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 how i measure myself you know is like if i'm going to go do something i want to i want to feel like i gave it every single ounce of energy that i have and i left everything on the field that's just how i'm i, I that that's just where i get my self esteem from and it doesn't matter if it was rowing crew or coaching my son's you know little league team or teaching or running a private equity firm or playing tennis or whatever like i just it, it's just i want to feel like i i just gave it all that i had to to the things i'm spending my energy on it's just it, it's how i how i yeah what I, how i def, you know i guess i guess the the meaning of life is to figure out what's the meaning of life yeah <laughs> and that's kind of part of my meaning of life is to try to see if i can be extraordinary for not for anyone else but just for me yeah uh, and there there are external benefits of that like i said i mean i i think we're having a really big impact i think i have an impact when i teach and i really want to just be extraordinary because i want to be extraordinary too that's awesome i um so when you mentioned you have these like performance metrics uh let's say at the firm or a- athletic athletics wise you have certain like weight benchmarks whatever but how much of it is do you recommend people start with something 
like you you can measure quantitatively versus something like I want to be happier or I want to worry less or like mental habits versus I want to stop smoking or drinking. I really, really like quantitative measurable things. Um, I think that there's something, again, like we go back to like, if you want to build your self-esteem, make and keep promises to yourself. And there's, sorry, well, I'm going to go off on a tiny tangent here. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of ways to get dopamine and we all spend almost our whole lives seeking dopamine. One way to get dopamine is to set and progress toward a goal. Like that actually, the setting of a goal creates dopamine. The writing out the goal creates dopamine. The taking a step toward the goal creates dopamine. Completing a goal creates dopamine. That's a really healthy way to get your dopamine. There's a ton of unhealthy ways, which you're aware of phone, alcohol, drugs, gambling, sex, you know, on and on and on. But that's a really powerful way to get it. And so if you can create a way that you can be measuring that yourself, um, it, it it'll become like addictive in a good in the best possible way, and and so you could you could give for example, I want to take a three minute cold plunge, and I'm going to do that five days a week. There's metrics: three minutes, five days a week, and you can you can make and keep that commitment to yourself. So even though it's like you know I want to be healthier, well that's that's intellectually lazy, right? Break that down a little bit. And by the way, only set one thing. Have, how about three minutes a day in a cold? I made that up, but you know, it could be five minutes a day of meditating. It could be, you know, I'm going to not drink alcohol for the month of December, um, and and making making and keeping a small commitment. It just it just starts to give you confidence, and you start you're it's going to become addictive. Um, but I, but I do think there needs to be a way to measure it so you know if you were successful or not. Yeah. <clears throat> it's really interesting. I think back, I'm like, when was I, when did I feel the best? And it was probably a year when I was training for a marathon that I, yeah. I didn't do well at all running the marathon, but it's actually like that year because of the tiny goals every Saturday, long run, whatever. It's like, I, I felt good about myself for keeping those promises, even if I wasn't the fastest. See, the great thing about that story, like the marathon isn't the thing. It's the Saturday morning when you got up at yeah. 7 a.m. and did the workout on that Saturday, like that's the thing. The yeah. race is like not the even part of the equation. I mean, I know everyone thinks that they're going to ask you what your time was, all that stuff. But like the real magic of that story was that on on the random Tuesday, you got up and did your workout that day, you know? Exactly. Um, so it, I encourage everybody to go watch your talk, but the, the one principle or piece that really spoke to me that I actually have rewatched a number of times is that anytime you want to make a change in your life, your life will actually get worse first before right. it gets better. Um, and I, I recently thought about something my dad told me about uncertainty and he was like, you jump in the ocean, but you don't know how deep it is, but it actually doesn't matter if you can swim. And I was like, ugh. That's true. <laughs> so how how do you grapple with the idea that any change will feel horrible at first because you don't know which way it's going to go? And do you mentally prepare yourself for that? It's kind of like goes back to crisis leadership. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think the 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 first part of it is the reason that I put that principle in there is that the first part of it is just being aware that that's true. Yeah. So let's say that I'm in a really toxic relationship. or Actually, no, that's not true. Let's say I'm in a 
kind of toxic. You know, it's 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 not good. You know, if it's a disaster, okay, I'm gonna get out. But let's say it's just not that great. I'm going to like, if I stay in that relationship today, my day today will be better than if I get out of it. If you stay in it, it'll be If better? I stay in it today, my okay. day today on, you know, December 1st is going to be better than if I ended it on December. Like just today will be better if I do nothing. Okay. Because if I actually end the relationship, I have to have a hard conversation. There's going to be tears. You know, I'm going to be lonely. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to second guess my, you know, all these different things are going to happen that are going to all be negative. But on the other side of that is me being able to be in a great relationship. So as long as you, like the reason that I think it's important is to just realize that the worst, it's worse first. So yes, your your next two weeks or two months is going to get worse if you get out of that relationship or change your job or start marathon training or whatever. It's it's almost always going to get worse, and that's why no one makes changes because they don't want to. They don't want tomorrow to be worse. They want tomorrow to be great. But as soon as you start to realize that the first step is negative, but you do come out the other end. It gives you confidence to kind of make those changes. Yeah. My husband and I stopped drinking three years ago and I I was like, oh, but then we have this party and then we have to explain to people why we're not drinking. And then you realize over time, nobody cares. It's just, they move on, but it's like, it does in the beginning, you're just like, oh, this sucks. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. In the beginning, like, the party, at least for me, the parties aren't quite as fun because well, maybe the conversation wasn't as good as you thought. You were just, you know, a little drunk. <laughs> um, so you've said that uh, reading voraciously is one of the greatest greatest life hacks um, that you've ever adopted. What are your top three books that you would recommend to people who do want to make that like big life change? I think the book Switch is about change. Mm -hmm. And it is by Dan and Chip Heath. I'd say that book specifically for life change, that is, that's gotta be on the list because that's exactly what it's about. Those guys are great authors. And there's a few principles from that book that have been just absolutely life-changing. Specifically, they have this thing on scale your bright spots, find what's working and do more of that, shape your environment, you know, some other things like that. So that, that would be one for making a life change. Um, Specifically, on making a life change. There's a book Poe Brunson wrote, which is, gosh, I can't remember the title, but it's about it's Poe Brunson, and and it's like, I'm sorry, I read it like ten years ago. I'm I'm saying this because it's specifically on the topic you yeah. mentioned. I'll, I'll I'll look it up, but it, it's um, it's literally about people who change careers like dramatically, like went from Wall Street to working oh, cool. vol- volunteering in a hospital. It might even be called something like, what should I do with my life or something like that. Um, I'd say those two um, specifically making a life change. And then and then probably pick up a book on goals. Uh, really, Brian Tracy's the – I think he's the world's leading expert on goals. And he's got – I've lost track, but he, I think he has a book called Goals or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he has, he has like – that's what he – every book of his is about goals. But um, – pick up one of his so you can kind of get clear on where you want to go and how to work backwards. He's, I think he's the, he's the, the guru on that. So those would be a couple ideas. And those are great. Um, I'll, we'll go back and I'll add um, the name of the book uh, when I find it, but 
for um, the new year is coming up. And speaking of goals, a lot of people like to set New Year's resolutions and goals in the new year. But then comes this like messy middle <laughs> of the year, like April, <laughs> not really the middle, but it, it, people start to lose motivation. How do you suggest they power through? So I think that actually people lose motivation like by like January 10th. <laughs> Or that. <laughs> <laughs> if you actually look at the numbers, it's like April's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Declare victory. April, no, uh, you're almost there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that what people do wrong is they 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 set goals that are too, they set habits that are just unattainable. You know, mm. you, you 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 know go to go go to go to the gym for three hours on January first. You know, it's like. If you spend three hours brushing your teeth on January first, you still got to brush them on January second and January third and January fourth. So I think people just over they they just get all excited and and like really and this is a lot what James Clear talks about. But you just just make it something that you know you can stick with. Uh, and and this was one for me on meditation. I I mean I, it took me so many years to actually make that a habit, and then I just started with five minutes and I was going to do five minutes no matter what happened before I even got out of bed and then that became, you know, what's now 30 minutes. But, but I, I, the reason I kept failing is I had, I, I would try it too, too, you know, too long and I'd get discouraged. And, and I think, I think that's probably the biggest thing. And then the second one would be accountability. So um, <clears throat> the, the, so for me personally, I don't need accountability to go to the gym or take a cold shower, but I do need accountability for me to set my goals um, work backwards from them, put them on the calendar. And so that's where I hire a coach who is my accountability. Yeah. You know, here's what you said you were going to do. And I pay that person to, you know, one, one coach I have, I can't even show up to the call without filling out a form that says, here's the goals. Here's what I said I was going to do last week. Here's what I did. Here's what I want the outcomes of this week to be. I have, like, even if I never had the call, the accountability of just even filling that out every single week is incredible. So figure out where your weaknesses are and where you can have, you know, someone, uh, that, that is, is holding you, holding your feet to the fire and building that, building that in is another, those would be two ways, set them small and hold accountable. And by the way, the name of the book is what should I do with my life? <laughs> oh, there you go. Perfect. Yeah, it was what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, prior to this interview, I read a lot of your blog posts, but my favorite one was when you wrote about your oldest uh, son going off to college and um, I want to I want to share this quote with people. It says, um, "Time is like an avalanche. It starts slowly, a snowball barely moving down the hill, but as it gathers speed, it also gathers momentum." Every older parent tells the younger parent and goes by fast because experience has forced them to realize that each phase with your kids will only happen once. You can't roll the avalanche back up the hill. Oh, that's crazy. Because <laughs> Yeah, you just had a baby, right? Congratulations. Yes, nine, thank you. Yeah. Nine days ago. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but but because it was nine days ago, right now we're in like the thick of right, waking right, up right, every right. two hours, the whole thing. So how should we make sure that we don't let kind of the the everyday minutia steal away the joy of enjoying it now. I think the biggest uh, obstacle to enjoying kids and the biggest misconception is that you're going somewhere, you know? Mm. So your kid is, you've got to teach your kid to walk. You've got to teach them to do this. Then they got it. They're in kindergarten. Now you've got to get them ready for first grade. And then they're on this and you, then you got to get them this. And you're, and you're like, it's almost like, 
you, you, you know, there's somewhere to go. And hmm. I, the best, <clears throat> I, the best thing I could say is like the, the, the point of your kid playing little league when they're seven is to play little league when they're seven. It's not to play in the majors. It's not to play in high school, college, whatever. Maybe they do that. Maybe they don't. But if you can kind of have each thing you do with your kids be the whole thing, like th- it's just about this. Um, I think that's what I learned is like, cause there's no, I mean, getting there is they're gone. Right. <laughs> so yeah. that's not, that's not a great goal. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it, uh, and so it took me a while to figure that out. I had this, this, uh, this this kind of mentor of mine give me this big talk about about how you know hey your your kid's not going to play baseball in college or, you know whatever and, and they're so it's just it's about now and so I, I'd say that's probably the it, it sounds a little cliche but if if you can approach each experience with you having your kids the whole point of that is just that one experience they're having not that they need to go to this and get there and do something I think that's a pr- probably the best advice I could give on that. That's so good because I had never thought about uh, the it, getting there is them leaving. <laughs> yeah, getting there is they're out of the house, which is, by That's the way, the, things people don't tell you is the most heartbreaking thing ever. And uh, I, I don't, I'm sorry to say that, but no one ever prepared me for, for that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's You're crazy. a ways from that. You got a long time. <laughs> <laughs> you say that. And then in 18 years, I'll be calling you. Um, <laughs> and my final question that I ask everybody I interview is what does the word success mean to you? How do you define it? A couple things come to mind for that. One is what we talked a little bit about, which is you know the meaning of life is for you to figure out what your what the meaning of life is and for you to actually take some time to define what that means you know what what is what is a life well lived mean for you and i i mentioned earlier one of my one of the things that is on my list um and and then i think you know i think success just like everything else is an internal game so it really doesn't matter what anyone else thinks success is it matters what really what you think it is and in many ways you'll be a harder judge of yourself on that than anyone else but in many ways you might judge it differently than other people too um and 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 like where you get stressed is when you're living in conflict and when your definition of success and how you're spending your time are not aligned so the more time you can kind of figure out like, what does it mean to me to live a good life? What does it mean to me to, um, to you know, how, when I get to the end, what, you know, what do I want to look back and, and feel about my life? And, and then if you can be living toward that, I think you're going to, you're going to just remove a lot of friction and enjoy, enjoy things a lot more. So I, I do spend a lot of time asking that question and, um, and you got you just got to be careful because it's really easy to get off track and do the things that show up on social media or the thing your boss, your parents or roommate or someone thinks you should be doing and and you'll you'll feel you'll know that because you'll be feeling that in your gut. It won't it won't it won't feel easy. It won't feel energetic. It'll feel it'll feel like you're stuck in the mud and um so you know let let give yourself permission to 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 do what you what you want with this one life even if it's something that no one else uh, uh it's it's not anyone else's definition of success that's that's great yeah you you just said the phrase that i use um to define success which is a life well lived 
And that means different things to different people because ultimately success is very personal. What's what you may find successful, I may not, and vice versa. So that's that's really great. I, I one more thing. Yeah, yeah, I was saying this to my friend the other day, which is like, okay, almost irrespective of your religion. Okay, I don't want to make this a religious thing, but you you're done with your life, and you know the the Christian religion is you're going to go up and you're going to be judged. Someone's going to let you into heaven or not. Well, before that you're 90 or whatever and you're looking back you're you're saint peter (laughs) you're the one who's deciding how your life was lived and and like it's not some third party it's you and so like live live according to that bar and that um standard Mm. and and it's going to be a good standard if it's not some nebulous creature that's gonna you know the, sorry i'm getting religious now but it's not, it, it, even if it is i think ultimately it's going to be you who's the harder standard to, to live mm-hmm. up to so it's almost like live as if your aspirational self is judging you yeah exactly <laughs> very cool graham thank you so much this was excellent thank you paulina super fun that's awesome